Father God, I thank you, God, for this time, God, that we get to come and read your word, Father. God, I pray for Pastor Brian, God, that, God, his mind would be in line with you, Father, God, and, God, the words you want him to speak, God, would flow through his mouth, Father. I thank you, God, and I pray, God, we would just receive this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. We're going to, um, since this is our second week in the book of Romans, I'm going to go ahead and kind of recap some of our intro that we did last week, just so everybody understands the context, because the context of this is a letter from a long, long time ago between two people, and if we don't understand who those, or two groups of people, a person and a group of people, I guess, if we don't understand who those people are, um, you can kind of misread things or add meaning that's not there or all that kind of thing. So it is important. And this, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church that's in Rome. And uh, as I mentioned, just a little background on Paul, which will matter at the end of the, the message today. Paul was... Originally, we see him in the Bible in, in, in the book of Acts as Saul, um, and he's going around, and it describes him in Acts 9, uh, verses 1 through 6, as breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he was definitely hunting down Christian people and trying to get them arrested and stuff like that. We even see him present when they're stoning Stephen to death, one of the first martyrs of the, might be the first martyr, Kevin, check that, first martyr, Stephen, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. He died for it. But, like, Paul was there on the wrong side, all right? So Paul's there going, yeah, let's kill that guy, you know? And then God goes, that's the guy I want to be my apostle, which we would have been like, probably not. But God said, yeah. And then Jesus confronts Paul when he's on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself shows up, and Paul, and he, you know, this blinding light, and Paul's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Jesus, you're persecuting. He's like, oh, no, you know? And he goes through this whole transformation and becomes the writer of a lot of the New Testament. So Paul becomes a very important leader in the early church, and he would write these letters, like the book of Ephesians we went through is another letter, you know, sometimes correcting, sometimes reaching out. Paul had not been to Rome yet. Paul was trying to get to Spain. God had sent him as a messenger to the Gentiles, which means the non-Jewish people of the world. Tell them the story of Jesus. This is your job, you know, and he's like going out to try to do it. And like when you go that way from where he was, you hit Spain and then you're in Portugal area now, Portugal, you know, like, and you don't have anything else to do, you know. And so he was like, I'm going to go all the way, you know, that kind of thing. But he was on, he's talking to Romans like, hey, I'm going to come your way. I've been wanting to come your way. I just haven't been able to make it yet. And uh, this is an early letter. Paul, Paul, all these scholar guys, and they agree that he wrote it at the time he was in Corinth, which is kind of a winter time, and you see that in like Acts 20, and they know the years somewhere, it's like the year transition from AD 57 to 58. So this predates like the writing of a lot of the Gospels and stuff. This is early stuff. Um, and uh, the other thing, is, it's a really long letter, and this wasn't like the kind of thing that you just sent like an email, like, dear Romans, blah, 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 here you go, send. You know, it was the kind of thing you had to, you had to write out, you had to pay a guy to transcribe it because you had like, scrolls and things and somebody had to take it there and I don't know how they calculated this but I was reading about it and they said it would cost in about today's dollars about two thousand dollars to send this note so it would like be an important thing you're like I'm gonna take my time to get this right I'm not this is not a rough draft you know what I mean there's other things Paul sends that are a little faster a little more like he's like I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys while I was there and then he's like oh wait I did baptize one of you oh, whatever you know like that that's actually in there you know this is not like that this one's kind of planned out and it would have been expensive and there's big themes. Um, the biggest theme, the overarching theme, the main theme of the whole book is that the church in Rome had two main factions that were having uh, disagreements. There was the Jewish Christian people, and then there were the Gentile Christian people, the ones whom like, Paul was sent to. Paul being a Jewish leader, you know, a, a um, pretty connected guy, 
but God sends him to the rest of the world, the Gentiles, you know. And so Paul's kind of perfectly poised to help this group deal with each other. What had happened is, you know, you look at the Old Testament, God had promised to redeem the world through uh, choosing Abraham, and he set apart this group of people that he's like, I'm going to redeem the world through them, and then it leads all the way up to the coming birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's the Savior of the world, the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting on. But a lot of them didn't get the memo. They didn't, they didn't receive that. And so um, Paul starts to address that in this book. But in Rome, and you even see this in the book of Acts, which our youth is doing a Bible study on the book of Acts, and you'll run into this pretty quick where there was this surprise that this message of Jesus is actually for everyone. It's not just a Jewish thing anymore. Now it's for everyone. But then now what do we do with all these things that we've been doing that God gave, God gave us? Like if, you're like if you read the Old Testament, like God said, do this. You're like, well, you're going to tell me to not do that anymore? Like it gets, you see what I'm saying? Like, we're like, well, Jesus is God. And so they were trying to sort through this stuff. And it wasn't always easy because there was a lot of practices. If you remember, we went through Exodus. God's like, I want you to not eat these things. And I want you to do these types of things to set you apart from these other people. And now Peter has a vision, the, you know, the main apostle guy, y'all seen the chosen. And he's like, you know, arise, kill and eat. You take this, you know, it's like the gospels for everyone kind of vision. And he's like, I don't, what, are you sure? You know, it seems like a good idea, but I, you know, they have to sort it out. And they're sorting it out real time the same kind of way that we're sorting things out. And it's in the book of Acts. They have a big meeting about it in Jerusalem to go, what are we supposed to do? Do we have the Gentile people now kind of act like they're Jewish? Or do the Jewish people kind of need to not act like they're Jewish? Like, and people didn't all agree, but they kind of sorted it out. They're like, you know, the Jewish people continue to be Jewish, and the Gentile people can come into the people of God, but they can still be Gentile people. They don't need to pretend like they're being Jewish. And that's a difficult thing to walk through, and it was happening in this group of people. Because in Rome... Um, Largely what people think had happened is the church had started predominantly Jewish, and then it had reached more and more people, and then one of the, the rulers had cast out the Jewish people, all of them, not just the Christian Jewish people, but all the Jewish people, and the Christian Jewish people got kind of kicked out with them, and then when they kind of came back, the church had kind of Gentilized, and then they were like, hmm, you know, and then this thing was going on. And that's the whole, this is what he's addressing in the whole book, and it does have a lot of value, and we'll have to talk about all of the Jewish-Gentile relations stuff as it goes through, because it's in there. But it also has a lot of value to any groups of people that are not getting along, especially in a church or religious situation. Could be racial, could be ethnic, could be age, could be male-female. There's all, I mean, any kind of group where there's an us and a them, and we aren't, you know, you know we talked about some of this last week. And Paul's addressing reconciliation as a theme, that us being reconciled to Christ, like Kevin was just saying, we have to be reconciled with each other. You can't have like, I'm cool with God and all, but this list of people, I really, I really hate them. You know, that's not a Christian position that you can defend. You know, we all feel like that often, but Jesus is calling us past that into something deeper. And Paul doesn't mix words about how to get there. Um, and also this, the book of Romans, as I mentioned last week, is such an important book in how Christian people develop theology. Theology is how we talk and think about God and the things about that, how we relate as Christian people to God and to each other, all that kind of thing. And so we've had it for 2,000 years, and there's been different movements in the church, and people don't agree on this stuff. And I mean, there's things they don't agree about that like actually make me angry. I mentioned this last week. I was like mad for part of the week because I was like reading stuff that these people were saying this was saying. I'm like, it didn't say that. And then I was mad, and my wife was like, you can't be mad about the Bible. Like, you know, <laughs> I was like, fair enough. <laughs> so... What I will promise you is I will give you my best of whatever I got. And if you disagree, we could talk. You know, I might be wrong, but I'm not going to – I'm going to stand up here and say this is what I, the best I can tell you from prayer and seeking out and research and everything. This is what this is talking about. 
And, uh, and everybody else that will speak during this time will do the same thing, okay? So let's get right into Romans 2. Romans 1, slight recap. Paul introduces himself, says, hey guys, what's up? Heard you having a hard time. Guess what? And then he starts immediately listing off all sorts of bad things that people do. They call it a vice list, which is not a list you want to be on. And you can go read Romans 1 if you weren't here last week. It's pretty short. It just So it's like, here's the kind of bad things these people do. But it's the kind of bad things that the, the group of people, remember, we've got the Jewish Christian people and we've got the Gentile Christian people. They would have all realized he's talking about Gentile people things. There's a couple particular things he puts out there that really stick out that they go, he's talking about. And, and the Gentile people might be like, oh, he's talking about us, you know. Well, now in chapter 2, he switches over and he's, he's, Paul is he's crafty. He's setting up a thing so that he can kind of knock the whole thing down. So he's laid into the Gentile people, and you could see that maybe the Jewish people might be like, well, good, you know, they need to hear this, you know. <laughs> I'm putting words in their mouth, but that could have been what's going on, you know. They're like, you know, I, I, imagine my surprise. I, I, you know, I don't know if these people live this way, you know, that kind of thing. Well, immediately he switches, and he starts going after these guys, you know. And keep in mind, Paul's kind of a both. He's obviously a very Jewish man, but he's very connected in Roman society as well. And that comes up in the book of Acts as well. Maybe y'all should read the book of Acts while we're reading this. It would be a good side-by-side. -side. Chapter 2. You, therefore, have... <laughs> so now he's kind of turning back towards everyone. Uh, you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So Paul immediately, he's not saying that you can't judge between right and wrong. We all do that. We all are doing that. His point is, don't stand there and think, you know, you know on your own self-righteousness, like, so glad I'm not that guy, this kind of thing. He's addressing that. And, uh, and Paul also had talked about in chapter 1, which comes up again in this chapter, that there is this conscience that we all have, every person, all people, in Romans 1, he talks about the God's invisible qualities just existing in the world. And no one has any excuse. Everybody knows there's this right and wrong thing. You know, even the people that try to be, you know, and I'm not smart enough or, you know, philosophical enough to understand that these guys that try to argue as best they can against any sort of, you know, real morality or God or anything like that. And they try to lay out the world so it'll exist. I'm, I promise you, you cut that guy off in traffic, he'll be mad. And you'll be like, what? There's nothing you'll be, you to be mad about. I mean, it's all arbitrary. And like, you see, there's this thing inside. It's like, you know what? You know? And so Paul's like, everybody knows that. Everybody knows there's right things and wrong things and that they should be doing the right things and they do the wrong things. Everybody knows that. And that's how he's appealing this judgment. You all have a conscience on the inside. But the point is for us all, including in this context, the, the Jewish people and the, and the Gentile Christians, that... We're all guilty, and that's what he's starting to lay this thing down. But he's going to go into the, some of the more Jewish stuff. Or do you show contempt, this is verse 4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's kindness towards us is intended to lead us to repentance. Kindness being, you know, not giving us what we deserve all the time. I and mean, how many of, the, of you, this is your story? You know, you experience God's kindness. That makes you go, oh my gosh, you know, this is the conviction. And I, I wrote down contempt, this contempt of, of, against God's kindness. 
robs us and others of, of experiencing that. You know, like we withhold it from ourselves, we withhold it from everybody. We turn into these dark and evil people. I don't think you have to... I think all this stuff is supposed to be like a well-duh when he's laying it out. But it kind of pokes you in the face the whole, or in the eye the whole time. Verse 5, but because, you, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And if you remember, we just finished the book of Ecclesiastes, and the last verse, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This isn't like a new idea that Paul's like, hey, guess what? I just found out something else. I mean, he's like, remember? <laughs> you know, God's going to bring every deed into judgment, even the hidden ones, and he's going to judge for all those things. And then it kind of switches a little to those who by persistence, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. So he's, not, he's saying, you know, what are you counting on to get you through this thing? You know, you know that you're doing wrong things. How are you going to work that out? You know, like... We could all go through and like, yeah, I remember all these wrong. Like, what are you going to do about that? What are you counting on? And he knows that the people on the Jewish side are like, well, you know, I'm God's chosen people. So, right? Something like that, you know? And uh, he's setting that up. And he's including everybody together on purpose. So he says this, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew them for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So keep that verse. Verse 11 there. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 is very short. For God does not show favoritism. If that's the kind of thing, this kind of like righteous, you know, right and wrong thing that we have that's so strong in our culture right now, hold on to this because it's a useful thing. It reminds you on, it's like, okay, God doesn't show favoritism. You know, it, it kind of breaks down so many of the things that we like to hold on to. I'll get into it in a minute. God's, this, these couple verses here talk about the same thing that we just read in Ecclesiastes. Is God's going to bring into judgment all these things that we've done. And I have these three quotes that kind of help summarize this. Because he's, you know, you go, well, isn't Jesus, didn't he save us from us? It's like, yes, and we haven't quite gotten to that part in the book of Romans but it's also good to remember that it matters what we do. David Pawson said it like this. We are justified by faith, but we will also be judged for our works. These two things are both kind of true. You know, John Stott said this. It's not salvation by obedience, meaning like I earned God's approval or favor or something like that. But obedience as the evidence of salvation, meaning like because God's forgiven me, I'm going to obey him. And of course, this Tim Keller quote that I've used a lot, I think says it the way I like the most. He says this. Religion says... I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. All the good things we do is in response to what God has done for us. And, so, and the Jew and Gentile theme, he continues with this. And he gives the Jewish priority as he did last week. But he gives it, it's priority. You, know, you, know, you might feel good if you're Jewish and he's given priority when it's like, yeah, first to the Jew to the Gentile. And he's like, well, all the judgment and trouble will come first to the Jew. And you're like, well, hold on a minute, you know. But he's, he's, just, he's laying out a priority there that's just going to be a theme throughout the whole book. Um, but always in the context of God not showing favoritism. So now he starts to speak right at, kind of like 
the three-quarter mark of last week, he started speaking right at the Gentile people. Now he's starting to speak right at the Jewish people. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. He's talking about Gentile people there. It's like these guys that don't know anything about God, you know, they're going to die not knowing anything about God. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is, Now he's talking, that's a Jewish word. He's like, but all you guys, you claim and you know what's going on. Remember God appeared on the mountain in Exodus and he gives you the, you know, the commandments, the law and stuff. He's like, you're saying you got it. So all you that sin under the law will be judged by the law. I'm like, whoa, that ups the ante, if you will. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Then parenthetically, he says this. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by the nature of the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them. And here's an interesting, and other times, even defending them. It's like that conscience thing in the, that causes us to do the right thing, even if you don't even know who God is, defends your actions. Again, in Ecclesiastes, we talked about, I'm referencing these things that we've recently talked about to show you the Bible is, there's a continuity of theme and thought to this whole thing. If you remember in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. There's this, all these things are just in there because God made us. And also, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So let's keep going. This is a long chunk where he's making this point. This will take place on the day when God judges people's seekers through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, or a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, if all of that. Like, if you think you know what's up, okay, you know what's right and wrong, right? He's talking specifically to the Jewish group now, but you can hear how he can also be talking to us. Like, you think you know what's right, right? Then there's a little hyphen, and he says, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing. Do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That, that last one is pretty intense. He's saying, like, the way you act as a person claiming to know what's up with God is causing people who don't know God to blaspheme him. Because they're saying something like, if that's how people of God act, I don't want to be around them. That's intense. And Paul knows what he's doing. And then he gets really personal. Circumcision, as you know with that, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then... If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So now he's laid into both groups pretty heavy. 
And immediately, like, these chapters, they don't break, like, the clean points in the arguments to some extent. Because in the first verse of chapter 3, he's like, well, is there any benefit of being a Jew? He's like, yeah. And then he goes into that. But we'll have to wait till next week on that. But you can see how Paul's not mixing words. He's like, we all want to come to God. And there's this kind of, like, there's this, this understanding that we all have. That there's this wrong thing and we keep doing it. And there's this right thing that we should do that everybody has no matter who they are, no matter how much they know God or have experienced God or anything like that. There's this other really weird and twisted thing that reminds me of kind of the voice of the serpent in the, in the garden when he says to Eve, like, did, he really, did God really say, you know, responding back to that, you go, there's this devil-like response. Like, well, I'm not that. I'm good. I mean, just people shouldn't act that way, right? I mean, no one should do these sorts of things like this list. And then Paul's like, do you do those things? And if you're honest, because life before God is only honest. We can fake stuff all the time around each other. Like, you could be going through the worst thing in your life and come in here and pretend like your life is great. And most of us probably won't know. Some people might, because they might know you well enough to be like, he's off, something's wrong. But you can fake it. You can fake it on Facebook. You can post all these things about how great your marriage is. Meanwhile, you're going through a divorce. And I'm not putting people down who are doing this. Most of that's coping stuff, but it's not reality, you know? And I'm not saying you should post your marriage problems on Facebook either. Let's just get off Facebook, all right? You know? But my point is, God only interacts with the real person of who we are. And I think deep down we know this, but we're so used to faking things all the time that we even bring that into God. We're like, oh, God, yeah, it's great. Everything's great. And he's like, why are you lying to me, you know? So he's, he's calling out how people act when they're acting out of self-righteousness. And even worse, maybe more particularly, he's calling out what I've decided to call something like the way people act when they think they have God on their side. You know, um, well, God's on my side. You know, the things I think, God obviously thinks the same things, and I don't know what y'all are talking about, but, you know, you, know, you see what I mean? This kind of way of interacting with the world. And he's, he's addressing it specifically between the Jewish Christians and the, and the Gentile Christians, but it applies to everyone and it applies to all of us right now. And I'm going to walk through just a couple quick, really quick points, and then uh, we have a song at the end. Because really, God on our side is just a distorted version of self-righteousness. You know, I'm right. God obviously believes, agrees with me. I'm a good person. They're bad. God's obviously against them. What more do we need to say? I mean, like, you know... And this is kind of how, there's a lot of this action around. We usually recognize it in other people. It's much harder to recognize it in ourselves. And Isaiah has a scripture about what, those, what our righteousness is like. And he says dirty rags. But it's a particular type of dirty rag, which you can look up on your own time. And it ain't good, you know. So he's like saying, you can stand on your own self-righteousness, but it's kind of like, you know, really gross. I also think this, the God on our side thing causes people to be really judgy. Like, we can judge between right and wrong, but that's judgy, you know, that's not a real word, but you know what I mean. Judgy. Just judging all the time. Like, I'm the one who's going to tell everybody what's right and wrong, and certainly I need to post it on Twitter or Facebook because I can't call it X, but Twitter, you know, they have to know. (laughs) Here's the truth. And the story that always comes to mind with me about this is the most blatant story about it. When Joshua, he was like God's appointed guy, to take the Hebrew people finally into the promised land that God has promised. 
and they stand, and then God parts the, the, the Jordan River, and they walk through in reminiscent of parting the Red Sea. God has done miracles like yesterday, you know, and then they're standing before this fortified city of Jericho, like, what are we going to do? And, you know, but God is with us. Like, we're doing stuff that God has told, you know, told us to do. And he's shown himself to be on our side because we're, you know, his people and we're coming into this land, right? And then, in Joshua 5, he has this weird experience. And there's another one to just file away all the time because it, it, it's, like, it's just like another antidote. Like, God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't. He, he won't. He can't. He can't show favoritism and be God. But he also, um, he can't be on our side like we fathom. This is what happens to Joshua. Keep in mind, like, I'm trying to say, like, who he is right now. God has sent them to do this thing, and they're doing it. And he's moving forward, and then he stands near Jericho, the fortified city that stands in the way of them and the promised land, which you know the story God's going to destroy. Now then, Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? So what would that angelic God person say? Yeah, I'm for you guys, obviously. Obviously. I mean, I've been for you guys for the whole time. Obviously, I'm for you guys, right? He responds, neither. So he's like, are you for this or this? He's like, no. Like, that wasn't the, that's not how you could, what? You know, <laughs> Joshua is smart. So he says this, neither, says this man. Now, a lot of people, like, this, this is either an angel or some sort of, there's a term for it, a theological term called a Christophany, which means an appearance of Jesus before his birth in the Gospels, right? There's a couple times where people think that might be Jesus who's come up. And throughout the, you know, another one is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's another dude in there. Because they're like, we threw three guys in the fire, and there's another guy. Who's the other guy? You know, they don't go, oh, you know, it's, you know, they don't tell you, you know. And so a lot of people think it might be Jesus. And there's a couple more of these things. People debate this stuff. I don't care. It's somebody working on behalf of God. It's either Jesus or an angel. Um, I would vote for the Jesus one, but it doesn't matter. Um, I told you I'd tell you my best, okay? <laughs> Just because of who he says he is. He goes, are you for us or for them? Because it's going to matter. And he says, neither. Or just, no, no, I'm not for that. And he says, but as a commander, or but as, as, not as a, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Oh, okay. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy. And you do remember the same exact thing happens to Moses in Exodus when he encounters the presence of God in the burning bush. And that's supposed to be the same thing. So he's standing in the presence of God or some, you know, representative of God and asks him, are you for us or against us or for them? And he says, no, because God is just like with Moses, like, well, who am I going to say sent me to, like, free everybody? He's like, I am who I am. Like, I exist because I exist. These words are hard to translate into English even because it says so much more than just, like, Popeye, I am what I am. It's, it's not like that. He's saying, like, I, I, I exist because I ex- Like, I'm, I am God, you know, and it's a way of saying God in the most total way that he can, he can express to us, you know. 
And, and Joshua realizes he's in that exact same place because I think this next point is one that we, this one might start meddling with everybody, and I apologize, but I think it has, just has to be addressed because the same sort of thing happens with Joshua and these guys. If you, if you can say God's on our side, you know, like, well, God's with, you know, there might be an okay way to say that, but it would mean that you're held to a higher standard, not a lesser standard. And usually I feel like when people want to use these arguments, it's because they're saying, like, it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's like this group of people or this person did this bad thing, but it's okay because God's on my side. And you're like, that's not how it works. When Jesus is like, he's like, no, I'm, when, he can't even answer, like, are you on our side? Or he's like, no, I'm on my side. I'm God, you know. You can't go do bad things and say, it's okay, I've got the God card, so... It's, it's all right, guys. You know, what the whole Old Testament, I mean, when God sets up the Hebrew people apart, and that whole story, which if you're reading our Bible plan, you're getting into the complicated bits, where it's like God said, do this thing, and they're like, ah, kind of, and then they're like, why, you know, this over and over thing, that when God gives, like we talked about in Exodus, bearing his name in vain, if you're going to claim the name of Jesus, you're going to bear his name, take on his name. I am a Christian, Jesus Christ, you know, I am like, I am following, I am a follower of Jesus and I'm going to act this way, whatever this way is. You should know God and the world and everyone should hold you to a higher standard, not a lesser one. Always. And it makes sense that he would. And he will. You can never use the God on our side thing as a justification to do wrong. And I'm not really speaking so much about, like, uh, obviously sinful things, because I think those things are obviously sinful. I'm talking about attitudes we hold towards other people, which is difficult. I don't know if you all have noticed, but there's an election this year, and the... uh, Politicians like to use this God on our side thing to get everybody amped up to serve their agendas. You see what I'm saying? And even more accurately, hate and despise the people that you might disagree with. Like, vote however you want to vote. Like, you know, pray, seek the Lord, vote. You should vote. I, I, I want you to be engaged. But if to do, to live out the Christian like the term is culture war that always gets thrown around. And I've, I've said this before. It's like, I don't really believe that's the mindset that we should have because I think it only causes us to hurt other people and it just causes casualties. And it might fit into that thing that Paul was just talking about, like bringing de- people despising the name of God because of how we're treating them and how we're not loving them. But we're justifying our not loving them because God's on our side. Like, I'm good. They're obviously evil, so I, I can hate them. And you're like, where are you reading this in the Bible anywhere? Now, that doesn't mean you can't hold on to an extreme conviction or even move in extremely political ways. Howard Thurman was a Christian speaker who highly influenced Martin Luther King, and he was talking about, um, again, it seems like such an obvious thing that he's like, a Christian goal to be Christian would have to be accomplished by Christian means, you know, you can't go, this is how we want everyone to be, so we're going to do these really evil, twisted things to get there. And we'll be like, what, what Bible do you think says you can do that? Like following Jesus. I'm like, I'm going to stamp Jesus' name on it because it'll get it. It's all right. We can steal a little, you know, or whatever. I mean, you can go through the list. I think you all know what I'm talking about. We don't want to be tricked by these people to hate people in the name of God. 
That's crazy. And you can still have strong views. Howard Thurman, who I just referenced, has strong views, <laughs> okay? These aren't, these aren't like, it's not a weak thing. It, it causes action, but it causes the kind of action that's Christian. It's not judgy, all right? You know what I'm talking about, so we'll move on. Kayla, I'm closing now. And it's a warning because some of the worst things, some of the absolute worst things that have been done in human history have been done by people who were absolutely sure God was on their side. And I don't just mean that in the Christian way. And there's a long list of Christian things, if you want to call them Christian. People who thought, I can treat people this way because God's on my side. Like, go read about the, the Reformation. And go read about, like, the Spanish Inquisitions and these things. Like, when the, the, the Catholic Church and the, the, the Protestant Church and how they were treating, they were killing each other. The guy who translated the Bible into English the first time died for it. Like, they burned him alive, trying to keep him, I think, alive as long as possible so he would suffer the most. Because he translated the Bible into English. Do you understand what I'm talking about? This is the kind of, like, insane stuff that we'll do to each other when we're so sure that God's on our side. Or they'll torture people to try to get them to con confess something or whatever. And, it, you, and it's also in other faiths. When you see, like, the actions of the guys who did 9-11, they were sure, so sure that God was on their side. What they were doing was right. You have to be convinced of that, or you don't go kill yourself for things like that. But they're wrong. And we're just as wrong when we do the same sorts of things. And the reason I think Paul was so easily seeing this is because of the story I told you at the very beginning. He remembered what he had done. He's not coming in going, like, like Peter could have been like, I mean, hey, hey, I've been here since the beginning. Bro, the whole thing started in my boat. We're good, like. I'm Peter, the rock, the whole thing, you know. And he could have done that. Maybe he did. I don't know. But Paul didn't have the same story. Paul was like, when I first heard of Jesus, I thought I should kill these people. And he was bold enough to do it. Everybody talks a big game. He was actually out there. And I probably, I mean, I don't want to speak for God right now because it's not in the Bible. Maybe that's why God's like, that's the guy I could use. Because he's actually willing to do something. He doesn't just sit around talking all the time, you know. He's like, I need that to help with this. But he doesn't know what's going on. And this is how God is. But Paul knows when he's addressing these guys, I can see in, the, in between the lines, he's like, I know how you feel because <laughs> I've been there. I've done some pretty horrible things. And not like adjacent horrible things. Like, well, you know, my family used to be drug dealers and we did bad stuff. And like, he's like, I literally... 100% linearly involved in this thing that we are talking about did very bad things with this disagreement you guys are having. I was over here, and I was, you know, I was trying to kill, I was killing all you guys, you know what I mean? It was, and, and he remembers that. And he knows that he encountered Jesus on the road, and he didn't, he deserved to be killed. Like, God show up and go, what you're doing is evil, and I'm just going to wipe you out. That would have, we would, if that, that story would probably still be in the Bible, and we would probably go, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, you can't do things. God doesn't take things lightly, you know. That's a clear thing. But God is kind. His kindness leads us to repentance. Paul isn't just saying, you know, theoretically and all, God would probably be nice or something. He's not saying, he's like, he's like in my own life, <laughs> I deserve the worst judgment from God, and he still forgave me. 
And you can forgive all of us. I'm going to close by reading this parable from Jesus because he's talking about this self-righteous thing because it creeps up so fast. It's like a, it's like a weed that grows alongside you know, the wheat and the tares of our faith. It's this, this weed. It's, it's like has to be continually pulled out. It's not like, I've been saved from that. I'll never deal with it again. The moment you think that, you're almost like back on the train. You know, it's a continual thing. And reflection on what God has done and who God is and all that helps. Uh, but there's just a stark warning in it. Jesus told this um, parable in Luke 18. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So read there, churchy person and like definite bad guy, okay? So like fill in here if you want. I, you probably wouldn't say preacher anymore, but like some sort of missionary person who's giving their life to like save all these people. Right. This is the best person you can think of. And then tax collector over here, maybe you just say drug addict or something. Somebody that would be like society would go, yeah, that's a bad guy. Something like that. I don't know. Fill it in with the person that you would judge. <laughs> the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. That's how he prayed. And if you understand what, like, you'd probably, if we were there, you'd be like, we probably wouldn't have gone, dude, chill out with that kind of, like, you know, we probably wouldn't like, yeah, this is a good guy. Like, you know, thank you, God, that I live this, this my life is holy. Thank you, Lord, that's da 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 While always in the background, he brings out the, he says, says the inside part out loud, you know, this is what, you know, we would probably pray the outside part, but not the inside of our head part. But he actually gets it out here in this thing. Thank you, I'm not like that guy. Look at him, you know. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, guys, he's inviting us, and Paul knows this because he's lived this, and I know this, and you know this. You know this is true, and God is inviting us. So let's stand. God is inviting us to come to him this way. God, it's not that we are righteous because we obey. We obey because you've forgiven us. And have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, help us to not ever think of ourselves as better than anyone. And God, I ask that you would help us to deal with the things that keep us from your presence. So let's sing this song together in closing. And then after the song, um, I'll come pray. And if you have things that you want to sort through yourself, the altar is open um, to come pray while we sing this song. And then if you have things that you need prayer for, not for just anything I'm talking about, but even just something in your life, uh, 
Actually, I just got a text from the, um, someone in our church is having cataract surgery tomorrow, and it's supposed to be kind of an outpatient. Jeff used to always say the definition of minor surgery is surgery on somebody else, and so <laughs> it's it's this, it's, an, it's a cataract surgery. So I just want to take a minute and pray. So Lord, I just pray that you would be with Pat as she goes to this surgery tomorrow, and that you would bring um, great uh, success. And I pray that you would comfort her and her heart and uh, help her to not worry, but to trust in you, Lord. I pray for your peace and her life in Jesus' name. So if you have something that you need to pray for yourself, come down. The altar is open. And after we sing this song, we have the prayer team up here in the front. They will be willing to pray with you for about anything, including cataracts or anything, okay? So let's close in this song.